So today we uh, conclude a series that we've been working on for the past six weeks or so, looking at how uh, our culture uh, lifts up values that are rooted in the Christian faith, but fail often to see the big picture, how they connect back to Jesus. Uh, again, looking at these values helps us embody them in our own life, so we, are, uh, we can be signs and signals and arrows back to the Lord. Uh, but we end today with uh, a passage uh, during the Passion uh, of our Lord. Uh, we look at Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 20, uh, when Jesus is being abused immediately before the crucifixion. And we read this. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. They began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lately, our two-year-old has been unusually stubborn. So that's par for the course for a lot of toddlers. At dinner, he will demand a dessert without even attempting to eat his vegetables. Uh, He knows that's not how it works. Uh, Asking him to eat his strawberries a few nights ago caused deep, deep offense. He glared at us. I didn't know he could glare. Uh, But he glared at us, and his face betrayed not just anger but genuine scorn. How dare we demand he eat his fruits and vegetables when he obviously wanted Oreos? That is the case. It should be clear. Uh, At night at nap time, he uh, he shouts for us, not because he's in trouble or pain, but because he thinks it's fun not to sleep. Uh, Now, that's a little bit endearing, actually, because he would rather be with his favorite people instead of sleeping. That's nice. Uh, But this strain of extreme independence usually causes more frustration than delight for his parents or even his sisters. When he decides to color over someone's latest work of art or tear down their Lego house, everybody ends up crying one way or another. Of course, independence is natural, even normal for this kid, for this, uh, for kids in this stage of development. Uh, what seems like defiance is often just a child exerting their autonomy, figuring out what they can and can't do. They want to make their own choices, but they don't yet recognize their own limits. The uh, child psychologist Christine Rock uh, writes, uh, toddlers realize that they are their own person and they're excited Uh, to explore their world. This isn't a bad thing, as we all learn through cause and effect and trial and error. But these common struggles are often frustrating for parents. So for a little while, all toddlers become a walking, living, breathing paradox. Parents provide them with everything they need. They enforce boundaries that keep them safe and help them grow, but they still desperately want to go their own way. Now, this is uh, similar to us. See, we never really lose this inflated sense of independence, at least on a spiritual level. Our stubbornness remains, especially when it comes to our relationship with the Lord. 
As we see throughout Scripture and the history of our world, humanity has always rebelled against God and resisted the movement of his spirit. Beginning in the garden with our first parents deciding to ignore God's commands and do what they wanted instead, the Israelites embodied human willfulness on their journey from slavery in Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. After repeated complaints and rebellions, Yahweh and Moses declare them to be a stiff-necked people. Now, this is a farming metaphor typically referred to an ox or some other farm animal that refuses to be led by one who knew better and cared for them beyond their comprehension. Moses wanted the Israelites to see how foolish it was to go their own way when their gracious God had promised to direct their steps. Even when God provided them with a new home in which to flourish, they consistently wandered away from his presence, ignored his instructions, and forgot his promises. The prophet Jeremiah echoes this language of stiff-necked people when the nation of Israel refuses to repent of their sins and are taken into exile again as slaves. Yahweh describes their stubbornness in Jeremiah 6 like this. I told you to stand by the road and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is so you might walk in it and find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But you said, we will not pay attention. Throughout their history, God's children refused to obey his commands. And they persecuted the prophets, and they rebelled against his will and their, his design for their lives. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, condemns those who killed Jesus and were about to kill him in Acts 7 with, again, this similar language of stiff-necked people. He says, you stubborn people, you will always resist the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, so do you. Even when God shows them favor, showering them with gifts and delivering them from ruin into salvation, the uniquely favored children of God still decide uh, to do what they want to do rather than what their God requested. They took the blessings of God, but they never really wanted him to stick around once their current crisis began to fade. William Barclay describes The independent streak that runs through all humanity like this. He says, the tragedy of life and of the world is not that humanity does not know God. The tragedy is that knowing him, they still insist on going their own way. We each believe that we, with our incomplete understanding, can make better choices than the God who both knows everything and loves us more than we can ever imagine. Despite what God has already given to us and what he promises, uh, should we follow him with our whole heart and mind and soul and strength, we still rush right on, head first, full speed ahead, away from him. Like the Israelites before us, we want the good blessings of God, but never want to surrender our freedom to God himself. Uh, Johnny Cash 
uh, sang a song like this. He says, we, uh, the people say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. The death of Jesus then, while shocking and brutal beyond our modern imagination, maybe shouldn't surprise us. If we know anything about the human heart's resistance to God's rule in this world and our own lives, humanity has always wanted the kingdom without the king. So much so that we killed the king when he arrived. When the king came to rescue us, we decided we didn't need to be rescued. The abuse that he receives at the hands of Roman soldiers don't just represent the extremes of human cruelty, but our own internal stubbornness. As much as we like to think that maybe we wouldn't be like these soldiers, our sin reveals that we too desire the kingdom. We desire the good things of God. We desire his blessings. But we aren't really fond of subjecting our lives to the king. Once we have the blessings of God, we would rather he leave us alone so we can do what we want. Think of it like this. We like bringing Jesus along as a passenger in our car in case we need him, but we struggle to let him drive. We would rather make our own decisions. The remedy to our own stubbornness, of course, is surrender. It's letting go. It's letting God take control. That's hard. C.S. Lewis wrote that we are not merely imperfect creatures who must be improved. It's not like we can take a course to submit or surrender. We are rebels who must lay down our arms. If we wish to know Christ more deeply and step into the abundant life that he promises, we must surrender our lives all that we are and all that we have, including our freedom to make decisions to our Lord. The life of faith is really nothing more or less than learning how to let go of our own desires, surrendering our own independence, and learning what it means to follow him in every aspect of our life. Jesus outlines this process in Matthew 16 when he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him decide, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Our ability to surrender, however, is not something that comes from within our own souls. On our own, we would never lay down arms against our king. But at the cross, Jesus subdues our rebellion with his love exchanging our willfulness for his perfect obedience. The soldiers taking his clothes while they abused him foreshadows that Jesus will cover us with his righteousness. What happens at the cross clarifies reality. So we recognize not just God's blessings, but the character of the one who gave them. And with the Holy Spirit's help, we surrender our lives and then practice this surrender This choice by choice as life unfolds before us. In Jesus, we are uh, freed to surrender. So every blessing becomes an arrow that leads us back to the love of God that inspires us to follow our God home. 
The stubbornness that rests in us on a personal level, however, helps explain why our world fails to fully practice the kingdom values established by Jesus. See, we live in a world that values equality and compassion, enlightenment, freedom, and progress on their own merits. But each one finds their roots not in uh, ethics or even philosophy, but the story of Jesus himself. Holding on to and affirming these values as we walk through this world gives us common cause with a lot of people. Uh, People even who would never say they believed in Jesus and many more who would consider themselves genuinely opposed to the concept of Christianity, much less any kind of religion. When we support these values in the public sphere, we become living markers, tangible signs that direct people back to the source who we know by name in Jesus. But at the same time, there is great danger in separating the values of the kingdom from the person of the king. Without Jesus to ground these uh, values, they shift from characteristics of faithful believers to abstract standards of the human condition. Perhaps not surprisingly, this makes our culture not more lawless, but more judgmental. Most people uh, understand, most people understand that every person has intrinsic value or that it's good to help others in need. But divorced from the source, these markers of the promised kingdom life become vague moralistic guidelines that can easily be misused or misinterpreted or even abused. Progress without morality leads to inhumane atrocities. Enlightenment without uh, humility leads to basically the plot of Jurassic Park. We pursue knowledge without any wisdom. On their own, these values offer not transformation or spiritual freedom, but expectations that too often lead to judgment. When Scrivener, who is an Anglican pastor in England, writes that we see this today in what we would call the cancel culture. We here have heard that, right? It reflects not the freedom of universal values, but the strict structure of an inflexible system. The way we socially or professionally ostracize Anyone who criticizes or goes against our definition of what is right and wrong has become a form of excommunication for modern heretics. This culture of outrage even has a a, a missionary zeal. Enlightened souls must lead ignorant people out of darkness or else they deserve to be condemned and left behind. The values of the kingdom severed from the king are still inherently good, But in the wrong hands, they can do great harm. We have a king who forgives us when we fall short. We have a king who helps us live a life grounded by these values. But our culture resorts to judgment and condemnation when someone says or does the wrong thing. Our world suffers from an epidemic of outrage. And they Rage against anyone who fails to meet the moralistic standards of the current trends, passionately crusading for the latest cause, but never recognize how these values fit together. 
Essentially, our world operates with only half the story. So many have been formed by the values that Jesus planted, but they never think to look for the roots or where they might lead. Charles Spurgeon warned about the dangers of this kind of semi-Christianity, of understanding just a part of the picture. He wrote, be half a Christian and you shall have enough religion to make you and everybody else miserable. He was concerned for churchgoers who knew enough of the Bible to understand its good advice, its morals, but but not its good news. That people might celebrate the, the morality that Jesus established, but didn't understand how they fit into God's plans to redeem and restore his creation. How they worked together with something that we call grace. They appreciated Christ's goodness, but not the Savior's story. Worse yet, the teachings of Jesus separated from the person of Jesus eventually leads to a culture, a world, forgetting the ways of Jesus. A culture that has forgotten those ways. Ways of gentleness and kindness and forgiveness. Ways of understanding, of standing alongside people Uh, who need help, encountering people who think differently than, uh, than us with grace. People, a culture that has forgotten those ways quickly slides into our natural stubbornness where those values lose both their power and their urgency. At best, our culture becomes much more rigid. Maybe, uh, you know, Uh, Maybe uh, living under impossible standards that none of us can live up to. But in the life of faith, we are taught not just what is right or true or good and beautiful, but how to model our own lives after the rhythms and routines of a living king. Remember, the values Jesus teaches to his disciples are not prerequisites to enter God's kingdom. They are supernatural markers of walking with him. When we are clothed in the righteousness of God, we are each invited to live by the standards of his kingdom because we have been adopted into God's family. We are not good because God says, uh, you should be good and then I will love you, but God loves us and then we are free to lay down our independence and be good because he allows us. He frees us to be good. Jesus calls us away from stubbornness and rebellion into a life rooted in his grace and love, overflowing with joy and light. See, we live in a world that wants the values of the kingdom. But in Jesus, believers find both the kingdom and the king. The gospel tells us the full story of this world. Our king stepped into the mess of our brokenness so that we might live. Jesus frees our hearts, not just to seek his kingdom, but live into it here and now. As king, Jesus comes to rule in each of us. And in him, we are free to step forward into a completely new pattern of life. Friends, Jesus might not be the king we would have chosen. We might resist his rule. Following him is always hard. In fact, following him often brings more 
suffering. It's hard to follow Jesus as he asks. But surrender is possible through the Christ, through the cross, and life cannot be found anywhere else. Hallelujah. Amen.